welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. This bonus episode is from the 12-part Genetics Shambles video series, which you can catch live every fortnight at 8.30pm from the 1st of July on the Cosmic Shambles Network. It's a wide-ranging series of conversations and discussions about the past, present and future of genetics with some of the world leaders in the field. It's hosted by Robin Ince in association with the Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution at the University of Bath. You can watch new live stream episodes first at cosmicshambles.com slash geneticsshambles or youtube.com slash cosmicshambles or just catch up here with a podcast edition one week later on Genetics Unzipped. Enjoy! It's amazing that explaining life's immense diversity All comes down to some genetics and some biochemistry And life on Earth is just one family And what's true for you is true for all biology Hello, welcome to Genetic Shambles, which we do uh, fortnightly and uh, now uh, live on Wednesday. It's live at the moment. Uh, today, we're going to be returning to something we did very early on in the Genetic Shambles series, which is looking at COVID-19. And uh, we've had a lot of great questions from people. We're going to be trying to cover as much ground as possible, including some of the kind of rumours you might have heard, some of, uh, as, as we know, especially on social media, um, there are a lot of things going up there which look like kind of valid questions, but which may well not actually be based very deeply in in science and the certainly at the moment i think we also have problems with not scientific or medical issues but ideological issues as well so we're going to try and cover as much of that um as possible uh, i'll tell you a little bit about genetics uh shambles or genetic shambles uh it is uh, thanks to genetic society the mill society for evolution and uh, and cosmic shambles that's uh, how all of this has been uh, brought together uh if you have any live questions we will try and deal with those as well i think this might be quite a, a long show tonight uh but if you can tweet them to at cosmic shambles uh, or you can leave them in the live chat and our producer Trent will make sure that um, I get those and uh, all the past episodes are on our YouTube channel uh, or you can go to cosmicshambles.com slash genetic shambles or they're on the genetics unzipped podcast so Lots of ways of finding them. We have uh, visual and also just uh, plain audio versions of those. And if also remind you uh, about things like uh, Patreon as well, which is one of the ways that we kind of have put all these things together. So um, our guest today, uh, two of whom have been on before, one person who it's their first time on Genetic Shambles. Uh, we have Dan Davis, Professor, Professor of Immunology. Immunology at the University of Manchester and author of The Beautiful Cure, which is a fantastic book, which I highly recommend. Uh, both his books are very, very good. Uh, we're also joined by Dr. Emma, Emma Hodcroft. Hodcroft who's a researcher at the University of uh, Basel in Switzerland, working on sequencing and builds of uh, SARS-CoV-2. And uh, we have uh, Dr. Nisreen Alwan, who's an epidemiologist and associate professor of public health at the University of Southampton. Thank you, all three of you, for joining us. Um, and uh, we've got, I, I want to start off with just some, before we get into some of the questions that people have been sent, uh, I think there's answers which... Well, I suppose masks is the first thing. I put something up about masks the other day. As I said, I think it seems quite very often it comes from an ideological point of view initially. Uh, Nisreen, if I could start off with you, what do we know about masks? Why should people be uh, wearing masks when they are going out and about and in particular, for instance, when they're on public transport? Well, 
Thank you, Robin. Well, we know by now, you know, at the stage we are at the pandemic, we know that masks are helpful, are good um, to reduce the transmission of uh, the COVID-19. Um, we definitely know they, you know, when somebody wears a mask, they're protecting others. Uh, and when others are wearing masks, obviously that they're protecting you. We also, now there's, there's building knowledge also about, you know, uh, whether masks can protect the, per the wearer as well. Um, and there's some interesting hypotheses um, um, around whether even if you get the virus uh, and you're wearing a mask, it might be that the mask would reduce the severity of the infection. And these, this is kind of, this is the, the science is developing in this area, but we definitely know the more people who wear masks, you protect me, I protect you, and we definitely and the, and the transmission of the virus is reduced. So if we don't want to um, go into severe lockdowns and things like we did few a uh, few months ago, masks are such an essential element of what we all of us can do to try and reduce transmission, particularly if we're in indoor spaces uh, when you know when we can't really stay away uh, very much from other people uh, when the ventilation in the indoor place is not very good so um, um, you know when there's crowding whether whenever they're setting this you know there's crowding must are really um, a very very important intervention that we can all um, use and there is absolutely no evidence that masks harm the harm our health um, in any way um, you know, people have been wearing masks for ages you know doctors dentists uh, nurses, uh, lots of people wear, wear masks every single day for years um, during their work. Um, there is really no evidence that they reduce our um, oxygen levels or harm our health. I'm interested. You you mentioned about the. I, I think it was a paper that might have even come out this uh, week, which is about the fact that um, lowering the, the the severity for the actual wearer. Uh, should they, does anyone has anyone read up on that paper? I don't want to throw you into the. But I, I think it came out on Monday or Tuesday. Um, could anyone give me a little bit of information about that? No worry if you can't. That's well, fine. No, I'm, I'm happy. I suppose you were talking. Is it the New England Journal of Medicine? Yeah. 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 So, so the yeah. so so the idea it is really a hypothesis, um, you know, and and there's some kind of um, a couple of um, citing of evidence in terms of people on ships wearing masks and the and the the type of infection. But the hypothesis is that um, the severity of the viral infection is linked to the viral load. So how much you get of the virus in the first instance when you get it. Um, and with that, basically, if you're wearing a mask and you still get exposed to the virus and the virus gets to you, um, it could be that you get a lower dose and therefore your infection may, may be asymptomatic. Brilliant. Emma, would you like to add something? Yeah, so I, I think masks are an important thing for us to discuss because they're such a simple thing that we can all do to help cut down on transmission. One misconception I've seen a lot on Twitter and in other conversations is this idea that the virus is really, really tiny. So how can wearing a mask help, especially like a cloth mask? The virus can just go right through the holes. So what's the point? Also, people say like, well, I can smell when I'm wearing a mask. So how is it protecting me from the virus? But what's really important is that the virus really doesn't kind of float around just one virus on its own. The viruses are actually trapped in little particles that we sneeze, cough, or that come out when we breathe and laugh and sing. And those particles, those little water droplets are way larger than the virus. They have many, many viruses inside of them and they are big enough to be trapped by the masks. And so that's actually what we're trying to do. We're trying to catch those droplets that the, that the viruses kind of hide in. And that's what the masks do. They trap those droplets and stop them from going into someone else's mouth and nose and eyes. 
So it would be fair to say that basically with, with the, the evidence, and of course this is, one of the issues we have is this is a changing situation. This is a situation where of it because there's something new and therefore people are going back to old papers and they're going back to something they might have seen published in March. But the current standing basically is, would it be fair to say that it is it is beyond uh, having zero effect and uh, it is certainly not a negative effect? Yeah, so Robin, let me, let me, let me just, uh, well, Actually, for, actually for, for a moment, it felt like I was in uh, some, some sort of PhD exam when you were asking me if I've read some paper that came out last week. <laughs> so I'm glad we've moved on to that. I'm glad you're back onto some general questions. Oh, uh, no, I <laughs> don't worry, Dan. I've, I've, I've been doing all manner of research. So uh, yeah, I think, I think one thing that's important to acknowledge about the mass situation is, uh, which is why um, some people may still be unsure about masks, is actually in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was some confusion about the situation. And although now it's completely recommended in the UK and USA and the WHO that we should all wear masks, including cloth masks, actually in the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was confusion and it actually wasn't that clear. So I think there's been a shift uh, in our understanding of what's going on. And I think acknowledging that uh, does help people understand uh, now that things have changed and we do have the data. So initially, there were ideas out there that while there was concern over the number of masks, there were concerns about how effective they might be. There was even concerns that if you wear a mask and you start fiddling with it, it might add to the to the danger. Uh, there was a sense that you might get a full sense of security if you're wearing a mask and, and end up being near people uh, closer than you should be. So I think that there was a lot of issues to resolve around masks, which is why we're in a situation now where for some people it's not that clear. But as you say, as as uh, Nisra and you've said, um, it is now clear. And, and, and the crucial data uh, really comes from an analysis of literally what happens uh, in countries when people are wearing masks versus in countries where there's a lot less mask wearing going on. Uh, and so, so from about end of May, June, it became really clear that there was a, there was one important paper um, end of June. They looked at 196 countries. They looked at the, the rates of infections and they, you know, there was an absolutely statistically significantly clear result that uh, mask wearing unquestionably helps. So, so there was confusion. Now it's a, absolutely clear the data is clear. And so now we should be we genuinely wearing masks. But there are still nuances around this. For example, what should the mask be made of? Um, and, and as uh, Emma just said, it's, it's, it's about the viruses are in these sort of large respiratory droplets. Uh, and so you need to be able to stop those. Uh, and there was a paper uh, not that long ago uh, coming out of Japan that said it's best to have um, a non-woven material, so basically something like uh, sort of the man-made fibers like um, uh, polypropylene. That kind of mask is slightly is is the best. Uh, but cotton and polyester masks were also good at stopping droplets, but non-woven materials were better. And then there's the issue over face shields, right? So there's it gets very nuanced here. But but face shields, um, the consensus is that. You know, they may offer some protection, but a lot of respiratory droplets do go around them. So they're not as good as a close uh, fitting uh, mask made of something like polypropylene. So so that's where we are with the data. So I think, you know, it's science in action here. We're learning about what really works from getting the data. And, and, and that's why 
that's why you know this, this what you're doing is really important this kind of podcast i mean it'd be great you know getting getting the message out there looking at the actual information is really important but i think acknowledging there was confusion at the beginning it was legitimate that it wasn't quite clear what was right to do now it is clear Sorry, Liz Reen, did you want to add something? Yes. I just I just want to pick up on Dan's really important point, and I think it's good to have it out. I think science is in action, and it is changing all the time, and really we should all acknowledge that, the scientists and the public, and I think everybody can cope with that. It's a new virus, it's a pandemic, things are changing. Um, what what we what we don't want is um, what we want people to know that there's scientific uncertainty about things. Uh, I think I think everybody should be transparent about that. The scientists, um, the policymakers, everybody. But I think what we don't want is confusion about the actual message. So we could say we're not sure about the science around some uh, or something, mask or whatever. But then there is something we call in public health the precautionary principle. So we could say you know uh, until we know for sure, until the science tells for sure we're gonna for this for x and y we're going to follow the precautionary principle once we um this is transparent and we decide that the message of what the public has to do really needs to be very clear and non-confusing um so for example the all the different settings of where you wear a mask and where you don't wear a mask um, could be quite confusing and, and it could be it's as simple as if you're in an enclosed space you know with other people you know with other people who are not from your household the place is not very well ventilated this is where you wear a face mask in the you know in the current pandemic um, in the current situation we're, we're in so I think it's about simple messages about when to do what rather than all these different rules and different settings and if you're in a restaurant or if you're in a takeaway and when do you take it off and when do you put it on um so i think and that's what other countries um have done who have been more successful in controlling the pandemic really kind of simple messages so we messages things like the three c's for example you know avoid crowded uh, spaces avoid you know close closed spaces and close contact and you know and and try you know whatever that setting is try and avoid that and obviously wear masks in these settings Thank think, you very much. Uh, wait, can I just chip into that? Because this is a really important discussion. So for me, <laughs> some of the idea, you know, when, when the, if, if the government has these, you know, sound bites and very clear messages, that, that is important. And I totally agree with what Nisreen's saying. But in the back of my mind, I'm also thinking, you know, when, when Noel Gallagher comes on a podcast and says, you know, I ain't wearing an effing mask, uh, when, if Van Morrison's going to start singing songs about anti-lockdown. So the sound bites... Uh, actually could sort of backfire because because you can you can rage against a slogan essentially and so that's why I'm thinking that we need to you know really nakedly acknowledge what what the what what we know and what the evidence is for that you know if, if you were sitting in a, in a pub with Noel Gallagher you know I don't reckon we could just tell him uh, right there's these three C's this is what you what you should do he'll say you know well I ain't effing doing that. But but if we perhaps unpacked that a bit and explained how it's how we are going to save lives by following these measures and it's not that bad to do these things, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe people would be uh, more more in tune with with where how the science works. Well, I, th I think it would, I think both are important. I, I, I agree. The idea, much like in a swimming pool, no ducking, diving, bombing, right? I've seen you do all three of those, Dan. And uh, that <laughs> it is to lay it out, first of all, and just say, this is the thing to do. And then at the bottom of the poster, it says, and here are the reasons why. But what you need in big print is just saying, this is not currently, I mean, as you were saying as well about the precautionary thing, it's what we sometimes when we're talking about the what science is, you know, science is very often the least worst answer. It doesn't necessarily.
right, but it's definitely better than the other ones, you know, for the for for that particular time and with the evidence that we have. But I so, so I think you know, with agreement with, with both of you that we need to also be able to when someone says, you know, whether it's Van Morrison or Noel Gallagher, whoever it might be, is say, well, actually, masks are good, and here is why. I think both those things are, are, are vital. I wanted to ask um, you, Emma, just again. I'm sorry. I just wanted to throw out a few things which are coming up a lot at the moment from people. The other one is when people are saying it's just another form of flu. They're going to be kind of covering up the figures that COVID-19 is not really happening when, in fact, all people have really got is flu. Um, I've seen this mentioned increasingly in, in the last couple of weeks. Can you give us some sense of why people, well, how true that is in terms of your understanding of COVID-19? Yeah, so I think that something about this virus, which has left some room for some of the kind of misinformation and conspiracy theories, is that it isn't as simple as something like the bubonic plague that is just causing people to die everywhere of all age groups. It's actually really distinct how this virus acts. So it's much more likely to have a severe outcome, hospitalization or death, if you're older, if you have pre-existing conditions. And so the good news is that lots of people get this virus and they don't have a bad outcome. They may not even have that severe symptoms or they have kind of a bad flu, but a lot of people have had this in their life. That makes it kind of easy to then argue this is just like the flu and what are we worried about? But we're actually learning with quite a lot of confidence as we get more and more numbers, unfortunately more and more numbers from more and more countries, that the fatality rate for the new coronavirus is much higher than the flu, um, particularly in those older age groups. And so it's really not comparable to say that if we let this run through the population, it would be the same outcome as the deaths that we deaths see that from, we flu, see from every flu every year. Quite to, the, quite to the contrary, as we've already seen in many countries, when this really spreading and causes a big outbreak like in Italy, it can lead to extraordinary numbers of deaths. Um, further on that, and, and Nisreen can speak much more to it, we don't fully understand how how much this is affecting younger people long term with things like long COVID and reports coming out more recently that the virus may be able in some cases to get into other cells like the heart and the brain and cause other issues that may be undetected and may last a long time. So I do think it's really important to underscore this really isn't like the flu. It's more severe. We're, we don't have any existing immunity to it, whereas we often, well, basically everyone does, has had the flu at some point in their life before they're, before they're an adult. And that offers us quite a lot of protection a lot of the time. And we just know so little about this virus. We've had years to study flu. We know a lot about the treatment. We know a lot about how well you recover and how immunity works. There's so much we don't know about this virus. It's, it's a completely different organism, both in terms of its its outcome and its fatality, and in how well we can treat it and how long, how what we know about the long-term consequences. Now, I know, Nisreen, later on, we are going to talk quite a lot. I know you've been studying long COVID and, and uh, we, we're going to come to that. Um, again, just two more things that I want to kind of clear up, kind of clear up at the beginning. Um, another one which is, is coming out a lot is, is um, people have been talking about their kind of their concern with things, for instance, like cancer treatment and with mental health implications of, uh, of, of, of lockdowns of these. Now, this, again, seems to be something that if you just see it initially, you can go, hang on a minute, what's going to, how many people are going to die of cancer because of COVID-19? Are the hospitals doing the right thing um i don't know but can i start with you Nisreen? would you be happy to start on this or, or yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. I mean, which is I'm, so just some explanation of why the problems that we then have within a health service and why you know how simple is it to just say look can't we just put the people with covid over there and then we keep all the people who are having their cancer treatment over there yeah sure i mean 
Uh, absolutely, this is a concern. major. And when we talk about um, deaths due to the pandemic, we always we we basically say the excess deaths as the most important measure, which is basically all the extra deaths that we're seeing compared to previous years. That would include deaths due to COVID um, and deaths because of you know all the pandemic situation, um, uh, you know because of COVID. Um, and 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 what we really need to make sure is that we don't get um, again, um, to the stage of where the you know where the health system is completely overwhelmed and therefore cannot deal you know with anything else uh, because although um, so one of the myths I've just seen something <laughs> uh, recently on Twitter saying actually we had space in the NHS it was all a myth the space was there yes the space was there but the space doesn't treat people you know people need doctors and nurses and staff to treat them and if these um, uh, start healthcare staff are overwhelmed with treating covid patients they cannot do the the other stuff um, and so we need to prevent that you know prevent them from being overwhelmed and and therefore we need to take these measures um, uh, to try and minimize and suppress the virus as much as we can um, so that the other services can run, uh, but but absolutely, I mean, this is this is the thing. You know, these needs people need to know that they can access the health service for whatever reason they have. Uh, there may be changes in the way the service are accessed, so more GP appointments are you know online uh, by telephone, and this needs to be assessed. And there are there is research going on, and and there is some attention now in assessing how effective. Where that sort of interaction is, uh, but but yeah, so, um, I don't know if anybody else wants to add. Emma, Emma, would you like to add anything? Yeah, so I I completely agree with everything that's just been said overwhelmingly, um, and I do think that another thing that's really important here is that when when this pandemic started, we knew so little about the exact details about how the virus transmitted, for example, and so we were extremely cautious. We didn't know exactly what you had to do to stop the virus from spreading. We now do know a lot more. Of course, it's still really important. There's lots of precautions we have to take, but we know, for example, that the protective uh, in, the protective equipment that healthcare workers wear actually does a pretty good job at protecting them. And that makes a big difference in how much you can then open up and offer different services when you're more confident that you can keep the COVID infection, you know, in the COVID patients in that ward and not have it spread to other parts of your hospital. And just to talk quickly about the second thing that you mentioned, Robin, the mental health aspect, I also think this is something that we could do with talking about a lot more as a society, because I know that the lockdown has been really hard for people. And I've talked to a lot of psychiatrists who have just been working, you know, day in, day out to try and accommodate patients whose conditions have, have gotten worse and are really making this a struggle for them to cope. So also prioritizing and making sure that people can still get the psychiatric health care that they need and that there's something there to support those of us who might not have a diagnosed condition, but still are suffering under the, the extremes of this long-term pandemic, the uncertainty, lockdown, worrying about family and friends. These are all things we're dealing with these days. And it's really important that we have resources in place and support groups in place so that we can all come out uh, better, even in these hard times. Thank you. And Dan, I just, oh, sorry, in this room, yes. Sorry, I was just going to say, completely agree with Emma, but very quickly also in terms of mental health effect, loneliness obviously has been a biggie, you know, with lockdown. Um, and particularly with any um, policy that would say, you know, people should shield uh, for a long uh, amount of time. Um, and I think 
like Emma said, we know more about how the virus transmits now. So it could be, you know, we were very, we were scared at the start. So people were shielding, couldn't even go out in the street, and you know, <laughs> outside the house. And we know now that they're unlikely to catch the virus in such a, you know, an open space outdoor if they, you know, go out for walks. So, so our knowledge is, um, is different now to it was before and, and we need to really pay attention to the mental health aspects and dealing with things like loneliness and anxiety and depression which um, obviously is a big issue um, with everything going on. I do think that it's, it's, it's especially when you have a government that you may not have a great confidence in that sense of personal responsibility and trying to, and trying to find the most trustworthy um, sources is a very very important thing to do because I think you know it is in our hands and whether that's helping other people with mental health problems whether it's about informing people about the use of various things Dan a final question before we actually get into the question sent in by the audience which is I have increasingly been hearing people saying much has happened around um, the time of HIV and AIDS that uh, um, this has been manufactured in the laboratory and so what you know this seems to very often when something new comes on the scene perhaps because it's a slightly better narrative to say oh it's okay at least humans invented it therefore we know it's been done by someone who, you know some bond villain as opposed to going nature is a tricky thing to live with you know and we're part of nature as well Dan in terms of manufacturing laboratory what do we know and what don't we know well, I think that we clearly know it's uh, from natural a natural source. There's, I mean, the the bigger question there is how do you deal with these sort of conspiracy theories or working out what the truth really is? And and it's actually not it's actually difficult in this day and age to deal with that kind of thing. Um, it's 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 really a question that's that's where do you get your news from? How are we gonna how how is information moving around uh, the people uh, and you know, I've got teenage kids who are getting their news. They don't. They're not watching. You know, Channel Four news. They're 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 getting it from social media. And and we we do need to think really deeply about that. You know, if if uh, in you know newspapers are, are, are losing money and uh, uh, BBC is under threat. And uh, personally, I think that we need to take it really seriously about how uh, we're going to spread information that has uh you know come from a, a, a collective reliable source and and the pandemic has really shown how important uh that 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 is so there is there is the issue that, that you said Robert. everyone's got to have their own personal responsibility uh uh for doing things but also as a society we definitely need to create the right infrastructure for how information is going to move around our planet. If I, if I tweet something, for example, and it links to an article in The Guardian, everyone's really happy. If I tweet something that's linked to an article in The Times or The Telegraph, it's behind a paywall, so everybody starts getting grumpy with me because they can't read it. And the, but, the, but, the, but the real issue is that actually we do, people who, who could afford it, including myself, should pay for news because we need investigative journalism. We need long articles that people could read. So uh you know i think that that i i answered the question in a roundabout way because i think it's about where you get information from and how you get a reliable source of information and and that is a really important aspect of what this pandemic has thrown up and also i think that as you said one of the hardest, hardest things, is, things is that there are people who are tremendously dogmatic in certain situations and i think more often than not you don't it's a waste of time to argue with them 
But there are a lot of people who I would say are in the middle area. There are lots of people, I'm sure we all know them, who they've kind of heard some things and they seem to be a reliable source. And they are people that if you offer them information. But as you said, also, I think the emotional side is this is one of the reasons the thing I put up about masks the other day. A lot of people immediately say you're pro-government if you're wearing a mask. My argument would be it actually shows a total lack of trust in the government. If For all those people who say they believe that COVID-19 is going to be used as an alibi to bring in increasingly fascistic legislation, well, make sure you try and protect yourself as much from COVID-19 because the higher the numbers are, the easier it is for a government to use those for their own concerns. So it's sometimes trying to find you know, an emotional narrative that taps into that. Emma, sorry, you, I know you had something else to say about you know what we know about the origin of, of COVID-19. One of the best explanations yeah. I've heard for, for this mindset, just to kind of tra trail in from what you were just saying, is that it's really hard for us as humans to believe that extraordinary events can come from really ordinary beginnings. It's easier to believe that a worldwide pandemic is caused by an evil Bond villain, as you said, than that actually the world is so scary that something small and innocuous, like a virus moving around in nature, can take us all to our knees the way that this has. But we, we can look at the genetic data, actually. So I work with the, the SARS-CoV-2 sequences, and we can actually look at these and tell that the virus was not created. So the, the way that we do this is we actually have samples from coronaviruses that are really similar, that are circulating in the wild in animals, animals like bats and pangolins and other wild animals, wild mammals. And we can actually see that there are incredibly similar sequences circulating first in bats and then a slightly different part of SARS-CoV-2, one that's often used by conspiracy theorists as, as proof that it was made in a lab because it isn't in the bat sequence, we actually find in pangolins. Now, we don't know exactly how these two viruses might have come together or how these two things arose, whether they arose multiple times, but what this shows is that this virus can be completely created in nature, totally naturally, with how viruses spread, and that it can replicate well in mammals and potentially become kind of adaptive and pick up parts from different viruses that are circulating in animals to jump into humans and be quite successful. And even though it's it's a little bit of genetic information, a little bit of kind of detail there, this is something that as scientists, we look at a lot in viruses and we can say this with quite a lot of confidence. So hopefully that at least helps understand a little bit how we can be so confident that this did come from animals. Thank you very much, Ed. Uh, welcome again to uh, welcome again to Genetic Shambles. Uh, that's the, the first half hour of it. We haven't yet got to your questions. Now we will. Uh, and uh, we're doing a COVID-19 special. And what I hope we're able to do, hopefully Trent, who is the genius uh, who does a lot of this thing, is we will also try and cut up some of the things that you've just seen. Not cut up bit by bit so that they say entirely different things. You know, take huge chunks of actual reason. Uh, and so that we can hopefully put up five-minute sequences, which may be useful sometimes when you are having um, discussions uh, with people. Trent might now. I would just be shaking his head uh, in terror that I've suggested that. Uh, first question is from James Crawford. Um, and I'll start with you with this, Dan. This is with the second wave hitting. Why are we not seeing the same level of deaths as we did in the first wave? Oh, OK. Oh. Well, some of that is is simply the the lag between um, us being able to see large numbers of positive uh, cases, uh, people then being hospitalised, and then sadly some of those people in hospital uh, will pass away, and but there's some time for all those events to happen. So, the the large numbers of people now positive uh, for COVID uh, for SARS-CoV-2 virus will, in time, some of them will be hospitalised. It's a sort of two week long process at least uh, for that to happen. So some of it is just a lag in time. 
and and that does pose huge difficulties in getting the message across because obviously people can say well only 20 people died yesterday but you know we're overreacting but it's not true you really do need to realize that the numbers of cases going up is going to lead uh, to really uh, trouble you know worse situations down the line but also there are um, you know, as as uh, uh, Nizri and Emma have said, we, we do know a lot more about the virus. We know a lot more about our immune response to the virus. So there are some uh, aspects of, of, you know, it's not like we have anywhere near uh, a, a treatment that saves people from the virus, but there are things that are emerging that do help. Um, what, for example, just, you know, there, there, are, there are several actually, but one of them uh, is a drug called dexamethasone. Um, which, well, actually, dexamethasone is, <laughs> I mean, as, you know, it's an exciting drug, right? <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a pretty amazing uh, small little compound. It has a wonderful uh, history to it, in fact, because uh, what it was, it was discovered um, uh, as being a hormone very important in in stress. It's uh, it's it's derived from cortisol, which is a hormone that's very important in your stress response. Uh, it was shown essentially that uh, cortisol dampens the immune system. So when you're very stressed in that flight or flight response, your body is not needing to use up its energy in its immune response. So it dampens its down its immune response. And and dexamethasone, this drug, is a synthetic version of that uh, um, uh, normal human hormone uh, cortisol. So. It, it, it's 40 times more potent and it dampens the immune response. And we know that's you. That sounds that sounds a bit strange. You're going to give someone a drug that weakens their immune system, but they're trying to fight a virus. But the reason that that works is because some of the big problems that happen uh, in COVID-19 is an overreaction of the immune system. So your immune system needs to fight off the virus, but it can overshoot that. And the damage that happens in the lung might be caused in part by an overreactive immune system. So giving that drug dexamethasone can help uh, some patients. So uh, actually, yeah, so it's quite a fast, yeah. So I, I, I love dexamethasone, it's an amazing, I did write about that a lot in my book, that's why I know a bit about it. But it's a great, it's a great drug, and that's one of the treatments. There are other treatments, uh, convalescent plasma is is taking uh, the non, the, the cell-free part of blood from someone who's been exposed to the virus, uh, and recovered and that has antibodies in it uh, and that may also help uh, some patients uh, get get better with so we so we can help some patients that's why there hopefully won't be as many deaths but as uh, Emma said right at the outset this is this is still serious this is not like flu we are already about uh, something like a million people have died uh, worldwide from uh, COVID-19, and normally flu each year kills about 300,000. Occasionally, the, the upper estimate of what flu would do is kill 600,000. And we've already lost a million people to COVID-19 in the world, and obviously we're nowhere near the end of that. This is so. This is this is still a very serious thing. And so, when the case numbers go up, we should act. We should not wait for the death numbers to go up before we realise we should act. Which is exact. That's the other thing I'd love to tell Noel Gallagher in the pub. Right. But, you know, you just need to explain that, I think, and unpack that so that people really understand that you can't just say, oh, we're overreacting. There's only 20 people died yesterday. You've got something. To, sorry, Nisreen, you've got something. Well, to I just want to um, I, I agree with them, but obviously. But I also want to add that that this uh, focus, um, you know, we're kind of 
10 months in and we're just focusing at, as, on death as the main, as the only bad outcome. And we're looking at things and the, and, and the message is it's a black and white, you die or nothing happens to you, you're perfectly fine. And we know increasingly now this is not the case and we still have much more knowledge um, to gain because we have no idea the long-term effect of the virus. So people who get it badly, um, you know, how much damage we know from previous, you know, viruses like SARS, for example, that, you know, about a third of people will have long-term uh, damage and limitation um, to their health and activity. Um, and, and we are already seeing that with long COVID. We might come to that, uh, to that a bit later. But I I think from a public health epidemiology point of view, I get very frustrated that we're not measuring any morbidity measure. We're only looking at deaths, and um, usually when you do surveillance in public health, you look at um, you look at deaths from something, but also you look at illness. You know, because illness is important. It, it costs society. Obviously, it costs individual. It has met, you know serious healthcare, social care, economic implications, um, and we're not quantifying that in any way. We're looking number of lab cases and the number of deaths. What happens in the middle? We have no idea. People are, nobody's measuring that in a meaningful way. So this is yeah, really yeah. important for people to understand it, that death is not the only bad outcome. Emma, would you like to add something as well? Yeah, so I just wanted to touch a little bit more on why we're seeing this difference now, which I've, is also something I've heard a lot about between the, the cases rising and not a corresponding in, in increase in death. Uh, Nizreen and, and, and Dan have already covered this really well, but one more thing that's different between now and in the spring is the age distribution of the cases. So we're seeing a lot of cases in young people right now. The upside of this is, as I said earlier, young people are much less likely to have a bad outcome from COVID. But the downside is, is that evidence that we have from other places, and unfortunately this is growing now with places like France and like Spain where we're seeing the cases increase, is that even though your cases might start in a younger age group, we don't live in a society where we only talk to people of our age group. And so we actually see this kind of spark spreading effect where it might be in young people to begin with, but it does start spreading to older age groups. And those are the age groups where we see these bad outcomes. And so unfortunately, I think in a lot of countries, this has lulled into a bit of a false sense of security. And unfortunately, we've seen it happen a few times. Everyone keeps kind of falling for this trap where we see cases rise, we don't see a corresponding rise in deaths straight away or even after two weeks because it's in young people. So they're recovering and doing okay. But as more and more people get infected, it starts to spread into older age groups. And then we see that bad outcomes in older people. And of course, as, as Nisreen just covered, that's saying nothing about the long-term effects that might be being suffered by these young people as well. But it's really important that we we don't kind of fall for this, this pattern where we think it's just in young people, it'll stay there, it'll be fine. We're seeing it again and again that it will spread to older people and we will start seeing deaths, unfortunately. And also, in fact, Nisreen, we're going to go back to what you were saying because the next question I've got, because the next you, you question I've really, got, you, you kind of really started um, answering it. It's from Robert Hunter. And, and I think it is a thing to know a few people who, who've, who've had COVID-19 and, and their recovery, those who have not recovered well. I was talking to someone today whose partner uh, has uh, type 1 diabetes and ended up in ICU very early on uh, during COVID-19 um, with COVID and is still now suffering what appears to be related issues, which he's not suffered from before in terms of black out and uh, and and also um, breathing difficulties. So this is what Robert Hunter would like to know. He said, "I'm interested in long COVID. How the disease affects the body beneath the mild symptoms, stroke, death binary that headlines portray." Exactly as you were just saying. Um, it seems like we're so lost in the misdirected civil liberties conspiracy angle that often the illness itself is forgotten in the coverage. So if you'd like to really expand on what you were talking about before, 
Yes, well, yes. Well, what we mean really by long long COVID is a patient um, 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 it, it, it is a patient term, really. You know, people who um, um, had COVID symptoms um, in the spring um, were not getting better, or getting better and then getting worse. Symptoms relapsing um, and getting all sorts of weird symptoms and getting you know fatigue, not being able to go back to near their near activity. So that that this is really this is a term that came, uh, you know, and it really does mean it's long and nobody knows what's going on it's just long it's not ending it's not what what what, the, what people have been told you know um you know it's a week maximum two week and you're completely back to your normal health so um loads of stories um about this anecdotal stories about people really who are very fit and healthy working age people um young people um not being able to do you know even mild uh, kind of forms of activity and having really lots of symptoms whether their chest you know chest symptoms breathlessness palpitations um chest pain neurological symptoms brain fogs um you know you know cognitive problems spins and needles memory concentration problems uh, muscle aches and the fatigue is a really common thread um you know and uh, you know the the post-exertional malaise so after physical or even mental exertion um and the pattern is strange because it you know it, it can fluctuate it can come and go people we don't know what we don't know what's going on uh, because there haven't been a lot of research and a lot of these people haven't even been admitted to hospital uh, when they first got symptoms um, and actually they um, it, it's a so-called mild so I, I was one of these people I got some mild symptoms uh, you know um, in March and then by the but the summer came and it just was not going away you know it was just you know the, yeah i'm having weird symptoms uh, the fatigue the activity level so i just looked around and, and 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 basically there was all this anecdote about it but nobody was quantifying the problem um and so so i wrote to be saying what what exactly do we mean by mild because if something lasts for more a month and it really affecting your functionality and people, some people are, can't even go to back to work for weeks um, and for months after. Caring responsibilities, I mean, huge implication um, to the economy, productivity, to healthcare, um, with no guidance really of what it is um, and, and how it's treated. And, and the other thing is, um, we the other the black and white. If I can just touch on that, sorry, I'll stop talking in a minute. But the black and white, um, the uh, the test, um, the test note, a positive, negative. This is kind of the the culture that kind of transpired. We've um, overwhelmed by the pandemic. We're seeing things as you know death death healthy, but also positive tests, no positive tests. So you haven't really got a diagnosis of COVID um, in spring. Nobody got tested um, if they were not admitted to hospital in the UK. We, the community testing stopped altogether on the 12th of March. Um, so all these people with long COVID who actually, there's some, some estimates now from, for example, from the COVID symptom app that um, there are at least 10% of people who got COVID have it for um, uh, you know weeks and months. Um, they can't even get a diagnosis from their GP um, because they haven't got that test proof of getting COVID. So they've got these symptoms, um, uh, unexplainable, and they haven't got diagnosis. And 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 how do they get their sick note? Uh, some of them self-employed, can't go back to work. Um, so all of these issues, um, huge, huge implication. It's not really a sub-story of the pandemic, long COVID. It, it is the story because we need to understand and quantify well let's quantify the problem and then try and understand it uh, later you know later let's see exactly how many people get, get it so all these people being tested in the test and trace um if we get a simple if they get a simple text say after four weeks of testing positive 
saying, are you back to your normal health? Are you back to your normal activity? Then we start actually, you know, understanding um, uh, the size of the problem. That's it. Stop. <laughs> I, I just want to quickly, I don't know if, if anything there. I'm, I'm interested. We, we talked a bit about the symptoms which continue there. How much do we know now of what might be physically going on? You know, what do we know about what's happened to the lungs? Have we got how far have we got with 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 understanding any of that? Dan? Well, there's, um, you know, so right off the bat, uh, right off the bat, uh, a lot of uh, immunology teams around the world started profiling what is happening in people that are infected uh, with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and mostly at the moment, that, or at least initially, that came from taking blood samples from people uh, day by day, perhaps. Uh, and, and then now... There's more and more things coming from actual looking in more what's happening actually in the lungs. And essentially what we're learning, uh, there's so there's now a flood of research papers, uh, you know, in the in the scientific literature, analyzing what's changing in people during this infection. And to be honest, uh, I would say that it isn't yet synthesized as a sort of overarching uh, picture. Each, you know, so for example, there was, um, well, there was a paper published uh, online in, in a journal called Cell uh, yesterday, I believe. There was another one last week in Science, categorizing people and saying, oh, you know, this this particular thing is a strong indication in our data that they're going to do really badly with SARS-CoV. And for example, the one that's published in Cell was, if you take a long time to develop a very specific, what's called an adaptive immune response against SARS-CoV, that's going to turn out to be particularly bad. Other papers have said, oh, you know, it's to do with the neutrophils, to do with the macrophages. Essentially, right, the immune system is such a complicated web of uh, different kinds of cells, proteins, genes, molecules, all sorts of stuff going on in the human body that there's a lot of data out there now as to what happens and the, the big game is to kind of synthesize that into an overarching coherent picture. So I'm, my feeling is that we're not quite there yet to understand exactly what's going on. But what we have done is rule out some things. So we know, for example, that interfering with this part of the immune system probably won't do much. We know that this particular type of immune cell, a macrophage, does seem really important. So we should focus our attention on looking at that in more detail. So we're moving along step by step. To, un to get this understanding that we need that will tell us what are the right treatments to do. Right, I'm going to try and rattle through as many of, uh, I, I don't know what time we you, have to you finish. You need to, to leave any of you, uh, you know, go to your homes. You're, well, uh, the uh, Holly Parsons would like to know, when will we realistically have a widely available vaccine and how can we cope with COVID without one? Dan, can I start with you on, on that? Oh, so the, the that. you know, oh, so the, the you know, the vaccine uh, situation, um, uh, obviously, everyone is hoping for a vaccine. Now, there are something like, uh, well, there are many, many vaccines in development, something like several hundred, I believe, something maybe even 300. There are about 40 that have been used so far in human trials. Uh, there are, it depends how you count them. There are four uh, big vaccines that have moved into phase three trials. Um, uh, but then there are others like the Russian situation and the situation in China, which is a bit less clear exactly what stage they're at, how much has been done on that. So uh, there are now the, the you know, 
like I just said, how we don't quite understand everything about how the immune response uh, works with SARS-CoV-2. This is, this, is, this is important to understand. So we understand a lot about how the immune system works, but we don't know. It's a, it's a bit of a gap in our knowledge. We don't know what makes a really good vaccine or not. We don't really know exactly what's going to create a long-lasting uh, protective immune response. We do know a lot about that, but we can't right off the bat, make a vaccine that we know is going to work. So what's the right strategy? The right strategy for humankind is to place lots of bets, which is in effect what we're doing. So by having all these vaccines being developed, many of them being tested in animals, but now some of them definitely being tested in people, uh, at, right off the bat, uh, our plan is to make, place lots of bets. And then the hope is that some of them will work. Now, we're at the stage where some of these vaccines do trigger an, an appropriate immune response. For example, um, there are vaccines that we do know lead to antibodies in people, and those antibodies are capable of stopping the virus move from one cell to another in a lab dish, these so-called neutralizing antibodies. So we have vaccines that can make neutralizing antibodies in people, but there are still unknowns. How long is that going to be really protective? How protective uh, and uh, and how long might that protection last? There are going to be, early next year, big results that will inform how vaccines are going to work. And it's impossible to know. My prediction would be that some of it is going to work to some extent. And we're going to be, we're going to face very difficult uh, situations where about how we distribute vaccines globally. It's also true. It's also very likely these vaccines are going to be tested in very large numbers of people. And everyone's immune system is actually configured very slightly differently as a result of your genetics and a result of the history of infections you've had for ex and, and, your, and your upbringing and so on. So that it's very likely that a vaccine, even when it does work, won't work equally well for every person. So we're going to be stratifying people according to the types of vaccines that might work best for them. A vaccine that works differently according to age is almost certainly to happen uh, as an example of that. So, you know, the world of vaccines is, as a scientist, exceptionally fascinating. Can I just ask as you one human, quick question? Yeah, no, no, if you, no. If, only if you can answer this quickly. <laughs> Don't worry otherwise. But this was just another thing that I saw starting to go on the rounds of the social media. Uh, vaccines always take approximately seven years for, of testing before they, they're given out. I'm not going to be someone who's prepared to take the risk of taking that vaccine. Yeah, but the world is really yeah, but the world is really moving fast on this. You know, everything took a long time. Sequencing a genome took how long and how much money? And now, of course, very quick, very easy. So things are moving fast, and we are absolutely entering a new age of, of vaccine uh, understanding and development. This we haven't done anything like the vaccines that are, that that we're that we're that they're working on. Two of the big ones, for example, the company Moderna is using uh, uh, an mRNA-based vaccine. Okay, never mind. It's a bit. Of, it's a little bit of, of a genetic material that encodes for the so-called spike protein in the virus. If that works then that type of vaccine can be used in any number of other ways. Moderna would use that for a cytomegalovirus and so on and so on and so on. So these are new kinds of vaccines. Uh, the world is moving rapidly and a spin-off of sorting out a vaccine for coronavirus will be uh, a revolution. It, literally, I genuinely believe that, a revolution in what we know about vaccines for all kinds of other diseases as well.
Brilliant. Thank you, Dan. This is uh, this is from Elaine D, but also we've had a few people in the live chat asking. Uh, Emma, this is, what effect will the drop in temperature over winter have on the severity of the illness experienced by people who contract COVID-19 in the coming months? So this is a really, really important question and one that's getting a lot of press time as the temperature dips. And I think a lot of Europe actually this week is going to see a drop in temperature that will persist and kind of be the beginning of winter. We've been really lucky in most of Europe. We've had a, a warm spring and we've had a long uh, kind of warm summer. And the big difference that this makes is, is behavioral changes. So we've studied this quite a lot for flu, which is why scientists have a fair amount of confidence that this is something we need to be paying attention to now. And essentially what makes the big difference is how people behave and how droplets behave in air. So at the moment, it's summertime. We can go outside. We can meet friends outside. Even if we're inside, it's easy to keep the windows and doors open, keep the fans on, air is moving through. And that takes those tiny droplets I spoke about earlier with all those viruses hiding inside and it makes sure that they dissipate so that they go out the window and you don't breathe them in. But of course, as it gets colder, rainier, more miserable, people come inside, they close the windows, they close the doors, the air is now much more likely to stay in that room. And another thing that makes a difference is you turn the heat on. And what this does is that we, we actually, when we talk or laugh, for example, we spray out droplets that vary a little bit in size. The big ones actually fall down quite quickly because they're heavier. But when we put the heat on in higher temperature, those big droplets that have lots of viruses, they actually evaporate a little bit and they shrink. And they can actually then travel further, even though they still have a lot of viruses inside. And this can then mean that even though you might be across the room from someone else, you know, keeping your safe two meter distance, those droplets could still travel and be inhaled by that other person. So this, these types of behavioral changes are what scientists are really worried about as we head into winter, because we're expecting that people are going to really change how they behave and the types of environments that they're in. And this could make it much, much easier for the virus to transmit, which is why we really need to be aware. There is also some concern for the severity kind of part of that question that this might also then increase the amount of virus you get. So as we spoke about earlier, that might then be associated, the, the kind of amount of virus that you're infected with might be associated with severity of symptoms, but this is a little bit more tenuous. What we do know for sure is that it's much it's very likely that as winter comes, the virus will transmit more easily. And so we really need to be very aware of our precautions and be ready for having ways to kind of counteract any increase in transmission that's due to seasonality. Thank you. I'm, I'm, oh, sorry. Can I just of, come yeah, in yeah. And completely agree with Emma and the precautions, really? Again, we touched on face masks are really important, but um, keep, we keep saying it's the testing and the contact tracing. That would have even a bigger role in the, in the winter because, you know, um, there'll be no substitute to really trying to know where the virus is and trying to, you know, avoid exposure to it and trying to isolate people and support the people who we're asking to isolate. Uh, so be realistic about that. Um, so, 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 so again, the testing is not going to go away. We're going to have to do more testing um, and and and, the, and contact tracing. Um, and obviously, we have to build the trust not only for testing and tracing, but also for vaccine when it's ready. Underly underlying all of these things, there's trust. Um, and if people don't trust, you know, the interventions, the system, then they will not um, do do what you know do all of these things. Um, so so it's really important to to always say that, and 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 also for all the politicians and the government everywhere really everywhere is to build that trust um, in terms of transparency um, with people in terms of what they're doing. Thank you, and I just. Uh
and get through as many questions as possible. Uh, some questions, Steve, Rupert, etc. I hope we've covered to some extent some things about mental health already and also some of the things about the mask. I'm sorry if we haven't. Uh, Justin uh, has a question. This is uh, Nisreen. I'll start with you on this. Uh, aside from places with extreme cases of infection, for instance, uh, in certain towns in Wales at the moment, etc., in the northwest of England, do curfews uh, 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. have any benefit? Nisreen, what, what do you think? I think anything that would um, um, reduce um, the amount of mixing between households um, in, in enclosed spaces um, um, would have an effect. I think anything that would you know, reduce transmission of, of the virus that way would have an effect. How much of an effect? It's really important. I mean, in public health, um, you know, we talk about complex interventions. There's no one, just one intervention that would give us the actual, uh, you know, the yes and no of, you know, are we successful or not? It will have to be a combination of things. So it's really impossible to know if this one intervention of, you know, say pubs closing at 10 p.m. Uh, would produce, would be the one that would produce, a, you know, a, produce the, um, break the transmission of the virus. It will be a combination of things, but anything um, that we think could reduce the transmission would work, but 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 other things as well. Really, people, it's not just about that. People need to be careful in all of these um, indoor spaces where they're mixing with other people. Thank you. Uh, this one, Emma, I'll, I'll throw this to you first. Well, this is from Martin. But so, did the UK government have adequate data from the actions taken and relevant outcomes in South Korea, Taiwan, Belgium, Italy, and Spain to act faster? So, this is a really interesting question. I think one that that's getting contentious. Um, I don't know myself personally, you know, exactly how much data the government has had as far as details of these countries. But I do think that we did have a lot of very publicly available information for how different countries were tackling the virus and how things were going. So we knew very early on, for example, that a lot of Asian countries seemed to be handling the virus quite well. They weren't shutting down society as a whole. Most did not have anywhere near the strict lockdowns that we had in Britain, but they were rapidly increasing testing. They were making it easy for people to work from home. They were putting alternative childcare things in place. And when there were larger outbreaks, they were shutting down, you know, large gatherings and shopping centers in those places for distinct amounts of time until things cleared up. And in a lot of those countries, life is pretty much back to normal now. And a lot of these have really had tens of deaths, which is amazing compared with how we've done in Europe. The other thing that we, we haven't um, managed to act on very well is watching other countries. So something that for me was incredibly frustrating in the spring was when we had that weekend in February where the case numbers were rising in Italy and we were hearing that people had died of COVID-19. That was a sign the virus had been in Italy for at least a few weeks because as Dan said, you don't die from this immediately. It takes a few weeks. But it felt like every other country in Europe was sitting there looking at Italy and saying, oh, well, that's too bad, isn't it? Good thing it won't happen here. And of course, it did happen here. It, it really spread around the world. Um, I feel like we definitely, one of the curses of SARS-CoV-2, I've said a few times, is that we don't really seem to be able to learn from others. We have to wait until it happens to us and only there do we take action. We miss a lot of opportunities for a strong and effective response due to our waiting. And we've seen it again to some extent this autumn where we've seen rises in cases in other countries. We've seen it spread from younger age groups to older age groups. And still we've hesitated until we see it in our own numbers. At that point, we've already committed to hospitalizations and deaths and it's too late. So I would like to see countries doing better, looking at other countries for examples of what to do and what not to do and taking that on board earlier so we can have better outcomes. 
Thank you. Uh, this is, there's a whole, there's other, a whole show. other show in, in, in you know, government reaction stuff, and I would love to do, talk about that as well. Uh, Nisri, this is uh, on Question Time. Epidemiologist uh, Sunitra Gupta says if the UK is aggressively protecting the vulnerable, then education, jobs and the arts can resume. Uh, and just wonder, do you think that is a, a viable and sensible strategy? Sensible strategy? No, I don't think this is a viable um, strategy for the outcome of death, um, even though we know uh, largely who is more, more than dying from COVID, uh, we really don't have um, a, a good enough prediction model to tell us exactly who's at risk. Um, so although we've got a rough idea, uh, you know, there are many people who, you know, didn't have these risk factors, were younger age groups um, um, and didn't have certain underlying conditions who got severe COVID and died from COVID. So we haven't got that. This is false precision. We haven't got that false precision in terms of knowing who to shield. So that's number one. Number two, how are you going to do that? How do you isolate this section of society from the rest of it? Um, so it's just not possible, you know, care, even in care homes, you know, you've got the, you know, people going into care homes, working there, you've got households, you know, multi-generation households, um, you can't just, you know, lock people up forever. So it's not even doable. And the third point, again, going back, we have absolutely no idea who is more vulnerable to get long-term health effects from COVID. Uh, we have no idea who, who is more likely to get that. Um, so, so, so really, we can't isolate these people because we still haven't got any data on that. So, I don't think it's a viable, um, a viable option. The, the, the best option to obviously you need extra measures to try and protect and shield people who are vulnerable. I'm not saying you you shouldn't do that. You should do that. Uh, but also, suppression of the virus in the general population is the best protection um, for them as well. Thank you. Uh, Dan, I'm going to throw this one at you. This is uh, from Richard, who wants to know. I'm interested, Richard, to know who wants to know. I'm interested to know why the consensus seems to be that most of the population haven't had the virus yet when there's been so little testing. My wife and I are sure we had it before lockdown, and so have lots of my friends who've never been tested. Uh, so many people in this situation, news today, including the briefings from the scientists, constantly emphasise this, but I can't see how they can draw that conclusion. The conclusion that sorry, the conclusion that, 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 people have, that most people haven't had it, that oh, many people it, who yes. haven't been okay. tested believe they may well have had it. Sure. So um, so the way in which uh, we estimate how many people have been exposed to the virus comes from two ways. One is as well as the testing that's going on. Uh, people say they need a test because they show symptoms. There is also sort of community testing going on. Uh, so a random group of people are being tested in, in communities. Um, there's, a, there's a particular government website for that, but I can't remember at the top of my head, uh, which is just testing people randomly to work out how many people have the virus, because of course we know that a lot of people can have the virus and not show symptoms. So that's one way we know that. The other way we know that is of course by looking for uh, antibodies in people. Um, now, both of those ways have some issues about them. We don't know, for example, whether all the people that have exposed been exposed to the virus would have the types of antibodies that are being looked for. Uh, there may be some people that we are missing uh, in these analyses, but by and large, that's where we're getting the information uh, from. Can, can I just pick up on something else that uh, Nizreen uh, uh, pointed out, which is about how, um, uh, which I think is really important. It's about building the trust because 
um, it's it's about this this situation that we're going to have when there, when there is a vaccine that works hopefully well for some at least some people. There is going to be an issue of building up trust in taking that vaccine and what it what it does and what it means and and the safety of that. Uh, Heidi um, Larson published. You know, you're throwing at me papers earlier on, Robin. I'm throwing one back to you. <laughs> Heidi Larson published. She's from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in London. She published a paper, I think, in last week's Lancet. Uh, and it's based on surveys of whether people think vaccines are safe and whether people think vaccines are, uh, are important. And it goes, it's global, it's, you know, all around the world. And that there is a decline in many countries of people thinking vaccines are safe and vaccines are important. And and actually the percent to me, those data were quite shocking. The percentage of people that in, in, in different countries that really thinks a vaccine in some countries, it's very low percentage of people really think vaccines in general are safe. to put more effort in this we need to put more effort in in to move away from the slogans to to talk about what it is that we're doing how these vaccines work and and how we're going to test that they're safe and how we're going to know uh, that they are going to help people uh, it's really important that we start building that up that that program of interaction between the scientists the medical doctors and 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 everyone uh, have to be involved in this discussion from now and i don't see that happening actually so i do think the government should step that up uh i mean i'm saying the government because they do have to kind of initiate these things i feel um and uh you know let, we should get on with that because it's going to be absolutely crucial if people start saying we don't want these vaccines it's, it's, it's also going to be another level of problem yeah. I think that Dan, do you know what? Let's do a, a conversation, conversation about, that. about that sometime soon, and we'll just do a vaccine special in the next kind of week or so if we can. I would like to do that. And uh, uh, now we've got we've got a load of questions left. What I'm going to ask is if if you are able to answer in a reasonably short, uh, brief way, but if you want to also add a footnote, so perhaps what we to try and make sure that everyone's had something answered, uh, we that they can then also at least be led to where they can read up on this. So I'm going to start with you, Nisreen. This is from Mickey, who says the whole herd immunity. Thing Thing seems to be gathering steam again because the government seems to be taking advice from some scientists. Uh, I've also seen uh, some scientists, I've seen a lot of other scientists who are highly sceptical of this, uh, given that we know so little about the virus in terms of its long-term effects, antibodies, resistance, second infection. Is herd immunity still as silly an idea as it seemed to be? So Nisreen, what, herd immunity, where do, where do we stand on yeah, I, 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 th I still think herd immunity is, shouldn't really be the strategy dictating policy because uh, actually more so than you know a few months ago uh, because now um, you know we don't we don't even we, we now we don't know if there is long-term immunity to the virus and that kind of destroys herd immunity straight away how long an immunity do you, do you need so even if you've got for one you know immunity for one or two years is that long enough to say we've achieved herd immunity because then you get infections again vulnerable people get infected again and actually there are now reports um, of reinfection um, so we know there are rare reports and hopefully this, this this is not the this is exception not the rule but that but we we know now more that reinfection has occurred in um in in, in rare cases um so and we don't really know in the people who are we're not testing or measuring the virus in so yeah very short answer i, I don't think herd immunity is from a public health point of view is a viable strategy um, in terms of fighting this virus i should say by the way that it, it do follow if you if you 
if you're on Twitter, don't follow uh, well all, everyone here, but Niz, Nizreen in particular has been been putting up loads of stuff, and there are links there, and they will help kind of uh, illuminate you. Uh, the next one, uh, Michael would like to know. Well, we kind of started on started this, but, on this, but Emma, if I can throw it to you first of all about trying to depoliticize facts uh, around um, COVID, how and again we were talking a little bit before about that emotional engagement. Do do you have any ways that you found being particular? Yeah, so this is, I, I wish that I had the answer because I think everyone would find that so useful right now. And it's certainly been really surprising to me how much facts have been able to be politicized during a pandemic like this. I think something we've already touched on is one of the strategies that I have found most useful, which is to not only say what you need to do, and it's important that that's really clear because to do something every day or every time you're in a situation, it has to be easy to remember and easy to comprehend. But it's also really important to explain why, because if you don't explain why it turns out that someone else will or they'll explain why not why you shouldn't be doing it and if you don't know why it works you don't have any defense against their explanation for why it's a government conspiracy or it's all false or it's a trap or it's a microchip or it's aliens or whatever the explanation is today and so it's really important to enable people with the facts so they understand why what they're doing or why what they're being asked to do is effective so that when someone tries to explain why it's it's not working, they can argue back and they know in themselves why what they're doing is fact-based and makes sense. So I think often making sure communication is clear and the explanations of why are really clear makes a big difference as to into how well people can defend against misinformation and politicization. I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to stay with you because this is a tremendously specific question. It's a very interesting question from Simona Knox. She says, "Is it reasonable to assume that at 30 to 39,000 feet, uh, that uh, um, air to be pretty much sterile? Airlines seem to be advertising the fact that outside air, which enters the cabin via the engines and is therefore heated up, then cooled, is virus-free as it's heated up at such high temperatures. I assume the outside air to be almost sterile, and it bothers me that they can claim heating it up is a necessary step to kill those viruses in the sky." Yeah, so this is a great question because I hadn't heard of airlines doing this, but I definitely think that someone's latched onto this as a way to reassure airline passengers. Um, it's, it's great for the, the engines, but as the question asker says, there's no reason to. We aren't worried about kind of sky viruses coming into cabins, and certainly there's no reason to believe that SARS-CoV-2 is upcirculating there with the planes. Um, what I do think might be more of a more kind of interesting uh, point for people is, is how safe airlines are. And actually, I do think that, that I've certainly been surprised by the fact that we haven't seen a lot of outbreaks associated with airplanes. I'm not, of course, going to say that that never happens. And certainly, if you're sitting next to someone who's infected, that's, that's a very close contact situation. But in general, we know that airlines circulate air actually really frequency and frequently, and it's filtered very well. And this does seem like it's probably protecting people on the plane from any kind of longer range transmission. Now, now we have seen just in the last week a paper published where there did seem to be one transmission that happened in business class on an airline. Important to note this was before any cleaning precautions were in place and before masks were being worn. But even the fact that we could have only been able to identify one does indicate that the air filtration on airplanes is probably quite good and these probably aren't as high risk settings as other kind of closed enclosed spaces that we encounter on the ground for example. But no, I don't think we need to worry about sky viruses. 
Thank you. Now we've we've kind of really run we've out. Of kind time. of really run out of time. Samina, by the way, you, your uh, question about vaccines, I hope, was answered kind of by Dan earlier on, even though we didn't ask your particular one. Thank you very much, everyone else whose questions we didn't get to. Uh, I just I, I wonder if there's anything in particular that we've missed. Where if there's anything that you would like to uh, perhaps starting with you, Nizreen, any particular message you would like to give people about uh, you know how we can understand more about the situation we're in and and what you feel are perhaps the most important issues for us to deal with at this moment. On, on the left. Well, I, I think it's just really acknowledging how hard this is. People just can't see an end to it. Um, and we're all in this together. And we as, you know, experts and scientists and, you know, everybody, we're in the same boat. Um, um, but I think, you know, we just have to kind of encourage each other and remain hopeful and just do these simple measures, you know, of um, trying to reduce the transmission of the virus. So again, it's about, you know, the masks in, enclo in enclosed spaces and try and ventilate as much as possible do lots of things outdoor let's make the most of the autumn you know before it becomes really cold uh, you know particularly with in, in terms of schools and children as well um and uh, you know and 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 just um support each other i think i think um, you know, try and be understanding. There's a lot of judgment out there, um, a lot of people policing other people. And I don't, this, I don't think this helps um, a lot. You know, people have reasons, have circumstances, and, and we all need to be really supportive of each other in terms of trying to um, help each other, you know, implement these measures. Dan? Well, they, they, well they, you know, they, you know, it's a it's a difficult time that we're in. Early in the pandemic, uh, there were moments when, things really, you know, there were some positives. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm at home. We started getting eggs from some farm nearby. I started to set up a WhatsApp group of people down the street. And, and there's a danger that some of that gets a bit lost uh, now that people are sort of getting fed up with, with the whole situation we're in. But I think we want to retain some of that. Some of, some of sense of togetherness and community get to get through this, difficult situation that we're all in, uh, I really hope that that becomes at least a little bit of the legacy of, of, the, of the time. But one other message, I know I, I don't want to speak for it, but the one other message I have is please do dig into the details a bit. So um, although I'm an expert in an aspect of all of this through the immune, my research in immunology, I am not an expert in every aspect of this and nobody is. So I am just like everyone else, Googling, you know, is this virus going to be stuck to my post for three days and should I be leaving it lying around? So I am looking at the, the, the information online for things that I'm not directly an expert in. And I think everyone does need to do that a bit. We do need to be a bit careful about misinformation uh, that, that, that might lead you down the wrong pathway. You know, uh, just, just dig into the details a bit from reliable sources so you know the facts. Emma, 30 seconds. <laughs> so I think one thing that I'd like to say is that I do hope that there can be some hope found in science. So even though we, 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 it feels like there's so much we still don't know about this virus, and there certainly is a lot we don't know, how far we've come in a few months is just amazing. We have over 100,000 full genome sequences of this virus. We have models. We have vaccines in development. We're learning more every day about how it transmits and how it affects people. I think we really can't overstate how quickly science has worked on this. And even though we don't get all the answers that we want immediately, which is when we would like them, if we go back to what, what Dan talked about earlier with the masks, we didn't know, we did studies, we found out, and now we know. 
we're doing that with every aspect of that virus right now. And I really do believe we're going to continue to make amazing progress and that we will know much more and be much more effective to treat this virus with every month that passes. And so I hope that everyone can take some encouragement that people are working so hard on this. We will make progress. We are making progress and at a speed that we've never seen before. That's fantastic. Thank you all very much. Uh, thank to uh, Dan, Emma, and Nisreen. And uh, uh, just mention, uh, um, just mention, uh, I'm hopefully doing an interview uh, that's going to be going up uh, towards the end of the week with a medical examiner, uh, talking about what happened in the early stages and and what may well be be happening again soon. That's that's going to be going up towards the end of the week. Also, we just did an interview with Paul Nurse, where we talked a little bit about this before we then just got to the very simple issue of defining what life is. Uh, spoiler alert, we don't come to anything that's ultimately a final answer on that. But uh, Paul Nurse is a wonderful, a really brilliant scientist and a, and a tremendous human being as well. And that interview is up there now. Thanks very much to Genetics Society and the Milner Centre for Evolution. Uh, the next episode uh, is going to be in uh, two weeks' time, as usual, Wednesday live. It's going to be about genetics technologies. And uh, as I mentioned at the beginning as well, you can catch up with cosmicshambles.com slash genetic shambles, all the ones we've done so far. And also the Cosmic Shambles site, of course, has loads of science interviews and artists and authors and all manner of other stuff that we've done. And uh, Genetics Unzipped podcast is a place you can hear some of our stuff there as well. And we'll also be back on Sunday with our Sunday Science Q&A, where at the very least we'll be dealing uh, with uh, mathematics and oceanography and probably something else as well. Thanks very much to everyone who uh, joined us tonight. Uh, I hope this has been useful. As I said, uh, hopefully we're also going to turn this into uh, be able to cut some of these things into kind of different forms where you can just kind of share them as well um, when you are having discussions with the people uh, about COVID-19 and uh, as everyone has said as, as well try and find as many sources as possible that are reliable sources uh, and try uh, this is a, a time for us both a sense of community and a sense of personal responsibility in in terms of, of both education and also of reaching out towards people uh, as well uh, though obviously in some place only reaching out within a two meter you, you know the basic scenario bye-bye Oh, <laughs>